I don't know if you've ever uh, felt like you've been kind of stuck on the merry-go-round in, in life. Um, I've been feeling like that lately, kind of maybe feel like you've been stuck in a rut, you know, thing kind of in the, in the hamster wheel, you know, things are going around. I was having a conversation with some people a couple weeks ago, I think it was, and I said, well, now that we're in August, you know, and it, I don't know if you know, but it's October. Actually, it's the end of October. It's almost November, you know, and I, I'm just kind of stuck. Like, I'm, I'm not even sure what, what month is this? You know, where, where am I? What year are we in? Uh, life can be like that sometimes. Uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes we're stuck in a rut. Some of you, like, you probably came in this morning, maybe felt like that. Some of us, us maybe feel like we're in a, like, a really good rhythm of, of life, like we've got a really good perspective. I don't, I don't want to ask for a show of hands because I don't want us to be, like, jealous and envious and kind of start off the day that way. Maybe you feel like things are going really well. Um, it might be, though, that regardless of of uh, which, which end you find yourself on, you know, everybody wants to be in a good rhythm of life, that, it, that it's about perspective. Like your, your life could look very, very similar, even if you feel like you're in a good rhythm of life, to somebody who feels like they're stuck in a rut. But the difference between the two is, is the perspective. I was on a trip, and this was several years ago with some friends, and we were uh, in, a, in a foreign country on a mission trip with each other, and we were working with a missionary who was there, and he drove like a madman. Um, so to give you an idea of what I mean when I say that, we multiple times ended up with double flats on, on, the, on the car that we were driving with him, riding with him in, um, and uh, that was kind of crazy. At one point, the brakes locked up in a place where we had to, like we had to camp out for the night. There was no, there's no way to get back to where we needed to be or, or, or get where we wanted to be. Uh, that was kind of frustrating. It was pretty annoying. I don't know if you've ever had a double flat before. Um, that's not great. Normally you don't have two spares if you even have a spare that has any air in it at all. Um, and so there are some things that, you know, we're kind of wondering, like, if we we're going to make it, you know, through the rest of this trip is kind of one thing that we were dealing with. Uh, but one thing uh, kind of quickly happened with us. Uh, because we were together as friends, uh, we're, we're competitive. Uh, some of you know that about me. I'm very competitive. Um, and we, we just decided to see how quickly we could learn how to change a tire. We already knew how to change a tire, but in the setting and situation that we were in, we just figured, all right, we're going to start timing each other and see who can change a tire fastest. And then that one time we got stuck uh, and we had to camp out overnight. It so happened to be that our brakes locked up right outside a rainforest. So we ended up like camping out in the rainforest. And some of those things, some of those places we were stuck, less than ideal situations, have become some of my fondest memories. And so much of that has to do with perspective. And I bring this up because this has everything to do with how we read Revelation. It, it's our perspective and what it has to say and what it has to mean for us and what John is trying to communicate through this letter. And as we look over the next several chapters, we're taking a huge chunk of scripture this morning. We're not going to read all of it, obviously, but we're going to be going through Revelation chapter 6 all the, all the way through 16. Now, we're not going to look at, at chapters 10 through 14 because there's a, that's the middle of the letter and there's a little bit of an interlude there. But there's a reason that we're going to look through all of chapter 6 all through uh, chapter 16. There's a lot of wild stuff that are in these chapters, a lot of strong symbolic imagery that we have talked about before. And remember for when you're reading through this on your own, because hopefully you are reading through Revelation as we're going through it. John is painting a picture through apocalyptic literature, it's symbolism and imagery that is used to reveal or convey the movement of God and divine perspective on earthly matters. And the temptation that we have, and the reason that we're, we're taking this huge chunk all at once, the temptation we have, especially as, 
I don't, especially as Westerners, the way that we think about things typically, is that when we, when we you know, observe something or see something, we want to know all the details. So, so if you imagine going to a gallery and seeing a painting, and you see this beautiful painting, let's say it's, it's of a landscape, you know, and there are horses running in the field, all that kind of stuff. Our typical thing is, and maybe you find yourself doing this, and maybe you're just able to enjoy the art for what it is, and, that, and that's great, but our typical thing is, you know what, like, let's, let's get real up close to it and see what this is really all about. And so we'll get up real close, maybe break out the magnifying glass, and we'll just focus on, like, one, like, stroke of the brush and look at the paint, and we'll say, man, you know, this paint is this pigment, and this is the era that this was, you know, really popularly used in, and this is how they would, like, this is the flower that they would crush up to be able to get this color. And you can tell by the stroke of the brush, you know, that Picasso was in a bad mood because it's, you know, firm here, and then it's not firm over here, whatever the thing is. Or the sun was, you know, I don't know, setting, you know, during the time that this painting was, I, I don't know, you know, the things that we get caught up in, we do this with the Bible all the time. We're like, God created, created the earth. Yeah, but how? Like, how, how did he do that? Like, was he, you know, I don't know, you know, molding everything out of, out of clay? Like, what, what was the thing? And how long did it take? And how did, uh, I, I don't know that that's the point at all of those things, but those are the things, those are the questions that we have. And we do this a lot with Revelation. What is, I don't know, what is a locust? You know, what does it mean? Oh, it's, it's just a locust. That, that's what it is. That's what it means, and that's what it stands for. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a step back, and we're going to look at the painting as a whole. We're going to look at the picture that John intentionally is painting for his audience. And so we're going to look at that as we take a step back and look at these six chapters as a whole. And the reason we do this is because these six chapters are about three events of seven. You might be familiar with these things, but the seven seals, especially if you read through Revelation, it's the seven seals, it's the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. I'm just going to go ahead and let you know, there's a lot of like crazy, wild, scary imagery that is all throughout this text. And a lot of times the way that people read this is like, oh, these are major events in human history that we need to try to figure out and we can develop a timeline and figure out exactly when Jesus is coming back and make a prediction, even though he said, don't do that because you can't. Um, And that's that's what we want to do with the text. But that's not at all what John is communicating. In fact, these three sets of seven are all the same thing. It's about the cycle of humanity. Now, all three are from different perspectives. But they're all three about the same thing. It's about the stuff that always happens. And John's not writing about this chronologically, but he's developing a pattern. He's painting a picture for us of what we put up with and how the world works and what God is going to do about it. All right, a couple things to remember just as we go into this. We see the number seven represented a whole lot throughout the Bible. And the reason that we see that is because seven represents, it's, it's kind of considered the number of God. And that's going to be coming really, uh, really important next week in the text as we talk about the number 666 and what that means and what that has to do with. But the number seven has to deal with completeness or the perfection of God. And so that's a really, really important thing to know as you read through the text on your own. The seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls and all the things that are happening there, it, 
it gives a picture of all the things that happen in humanity. We're going to talk about that in a little bit more detail here in just a minute. The other thing that, that I think would be really important to know, too, is just this group of three. Like, why do we see so many groups of three in the text? Like the Trinity, God is three in one. What does that mean, and how do we describe that? Most of the time when people do that, they, they, uh, talk, uh, they say some sort of heresy, right, is, is the thing that happens with that. But three represents wholeness. So seven represents completeness or the perfection of God. Three represents the wholeness that God desires and creates in, in the world or wants us to be a part of. So, for example, it represents shalom or peace. And the way that we think of shalom or peace is a little bit differently than how the text, the Bible, is talking about that. So we often think when we think of peace, we think of quiet. You know, it would be nice to have some, some peace and quiet. But when God talks about peace or the Bible talks about peace, it's talking about harmony or wholeness between God and humanity, between humanity and humanity, and between humanity and creation. So there are three sevens, three different perspectives on the cycle of humanity that we all find ourselves caught up in and that continues until God makes everything right. So the first one is the seven seals. This starts off in Revelation chapter 6, and we're not going to read through all the text, like I said, but as you read through that, you see some pretty powerful imagery. We see in the first four seals, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We're probably familiar with this. Uh, we've got four horses that come, up with, come out with riders, and a lot of times people are like, well, who is this? You know, who does this represent, and what event is this? The first one simply represents conquest. You think about the context it's Ro the Roman Empire and Julius Caesar who kind of gets the ball rolling. And what does he say? One of, one of his, one of his favorite, favorite, not favorite, fam well, maybe it's his favorite, but famous lines is, I came, I saw, I conquered. That's what the Roman Empire wanted to do. They wanted to gobble everything up. They wanted to expand their territory. And what follows conquest? Well, there's a red horse that pops out. Bloodshed, slaughter, war the inevitability of that pursuit of empire. What's the next thing? It's this other horse, the, the black horse that comes out. And how is that horse described? It's described as famine. The inevitable conclusion to conquest and war is the economy. <laughs> you know, pays a very steep price. The way that we live our lives, uh, there's shortage of things. It never ends well. And what ultimately comes as a result of empire and pursuing and the things that empires pursue is death. The final horse comes out. Because this is what evil and sin always ends up with. And this is, again, this is not about like one specific event that we're looking forward to, looking forward, not forward to, uh, looking for in the future. This is a cycle that John is pointing out that always happens. This is what always takes place. We, we describe the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I mean, this is happening right now. On the global stage in our world, this is what has always happened because this is what humanity does. When humanity gets caught up in empire, when humanity gets caught up in building kingdoms of this world, and what did Jesus come to share with us? What did Jesus usher in? The kingdom of God, which is something wholly different and produces something else. Now, these seven seals, they come from a specific perspective, and it's kind of our perspective. And when I say our, the church and how all of these things impact us. Because by the time we get to the fifth seal, the fifth seal are about believers who have been caught up in the war and the conquest and the death and the famine. The fifth seal is the martyrs, and the martyrs crying out 
out to God, and it represents how the church is impacted because we get caught up in these things. We live in a world that's broken by sin. We live in a world in which humanity, you know, does not seek after God's own heart, and we get caught up in that. And so much of what Revelation is about is to say, what happens with us? What do we do about this? In the sixth seal, we read this. Uh, this description is great. There's a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth. This is Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. Made of goat hair, the whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And a lot of times people read this and they think, oh man, imagine how crazy this is going to be in the future. And actually what John is employing is language that's used regularly in the Old Testament to um, describe what it feels like and what it looks like when nations crumble and fall. And again, this is how it works. This is how it always happens, is that you have an empire build up and it's going to be great. You look at the second half of Daniel and Daniel sees this big statue and all the different metals that are there represented there. It's talking about different empires. And now this is, this is how it always works. If it's not going to be the Roman Empire, then at some point it's going to be the British Empire. At some point it's going to be the, oh, man, I hesitate to say, maybe the American Empire? I, I don't know. Maybe, that's too, maybe that hits too close to home. Whatever empire it's going to be, at, at some point, this is how it works out. At some point, it's all going to crumble and it's going to fall because the things that we try to build on our own power, with our own will, this is how it ends up every time. However, as we continue throughout the message of Revelation, as terrible as the rut and repetition of evil that the empires of this world continue in and we get caught up in, God has not forgotten us. In Revelation chapter 7, there's this imagery of 144,000 that are given the seal of God who are set apart. And sometimes people um, look at this as like, oh, there's only going to be 144,000 people who are saved in heaven. It's not at all what this is communicating. This is communicating uh, that God is going to keep his promise to redeem his people. As we continue to look in uh, the following verses of that chapter in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, even with all of these seals and the, and the constant pattern of humanity that we get caught up in, this is what God has to say ultimately. After this, John looks, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Skipping a few verses in, in verse 13. Then one of the elders asked John, These are white robes. Who are they, and where did they come from? And John says, I don't have a clue. What are you talking about? And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Again, we hear the word tri tribulation. A lot of times people are like, oh, well, that's that thing that's going to happen in the future. No. Like, let, let's not discredit and discount what people have been going through since the dawn of time. People are already and have already been through tribulation. Believers have lost their lives or losing their lives. Uh, the audience that John is writing to, I mean, they're actively being oppressed and persecuted and killed for their belief in Jesus. They've been through tribulation. And, and the message for us is, but, but see what happens ultimately. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is the, that's the picture, by the way, of baptism and, and how we say yes to Jesus. We're washed in the blood. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, 
Never again will they thirst. The sun will not be down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There's plenty of more scary material to come. The trumpets, the bowls are coming. They're on their way. Nations will continue to rise and fall. However, the verdict from the throne room of God is going to come. And what we know is, for those who are called according to his purpose, who love him and are following him, God is going to make everything new. And everything is going to be brought to right. The pain and suffering that we get caught up in in this world will not overshadow the rhythm of hope that is established through God's kingdom. And Revelation is meant to be an encouragement and a reminder that there's hope for us to hold on to. There's a divine perspective that changes how we experience this life. Before the seventh seal result is shown in Revelation chapter 8 verse 1, just says heaven is you know, silent for half an hour because that's what happens when you're waiting for the verdict to be read. The cycle uh, gets kind of rewinded. You know, the, the timeline is like, oh, okay, let's go back and let's start, start this new thing. We're going to start the seven, seven trumpets. The trumpets are blown, each one representing a plague, and the cycle continues. Uh, this perspective is the perspective of what it looks like from the world's eyes. So the first one was, okay, how do we see things from the church and what, what's the result as, as believers in Christ? This is, what does it look like from the world's eyes? What is, God, uh, what is God doing when he sounds these warnings and allows these consequence, consequences? There's great evil perpetuated by humanity when, it's loses, when it loses its way, and God is trying to redeem humanity to himself. And so the trumpets come, and all the trumpets are all about plagues, the things that happen in life that we get caught up in, the brokenness of sin and death and humanity. But here's always the ultimate, not always the ultimate result, but here, here tends to be the result with humanity. In Revelation chapter 9, verse 20. The rest of humanity who had not been killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, so that they did not stop worshiping demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk about. Furthermore, they did not repent of their murders, of their magic spells, of their sexual immorality, or of their stealing. What do we do so often? You know, there, there's so many obvious consequences for the things that we pursue. Again, empire building, what does it bring? It brings war and bloodshed, and it brings, um, it brings famine, and it brings death. This, this happens, and what do we do? We continue to pursue the same thing over and over again. Uh, so often, you know, we might ask, ask the question, why does pain and suffering happen? Um, sometimes, it happens because God is allowing us to feel the consequences of sin and evil to, to get us to, to look in a different direction and say, maybe if we keep doing the same thing over and over and over, it's not going to produce the righteousness or the holiness or the glory or the, even the joy of the life that God wants to share and creates for us to be able to experience with him. We, we tend to find ourselves in the same situations over and over again because we have a hard time learning from the consequences of our sin and, and why it matters that God calls us to repentance. Uh, the philosopher George Santayana uh, said, this, you know, the famous, the famous quote, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. We've, we've all heard it, um, but do we, do we all learn from it? Um, not, not as much as we would like. I, I know um, I'm pretty embarrassed about the things that I continue to mess up on and that I continue to, uh, to get wrong in my life, even though I know better. I, I kind of like the way Mark Twain put it a little bit better. 
He says, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And, and that's what's happening with these three cycles of seven, is that history is happening again and again. It's not the same exact events, and sometimes it looks a little bit different, but it, but it rhymes, you know, because it's the same thing over and over again. And this is going to be drawn even more sharply into focus with our third set of, heaven, of seven. Um, these seven bowls and the perspective of final judgment, by the time we get to Revelation 15 and 16, um, this, is, this is the final thing. This is what's happening ultimately. God's wrath is being poured out on evil. And there are two really important truths to hold on to as we read through this letter. That's true for the entire thing, but especially as we think about what's happening with these seven bowls of wrath. God wants all people, all of humanity to be, humanity to be redeemed to him, but he's not going to let evil exist forever. Evil just isn't going to win, and God is just not simply not going to allow it. These things will all come to a head, and the final seven bowls, which are just like the seven trumpets, are the perspective of God's wrath putting a final note and fulfilling the seventh seal, the cycle of empire and sin and humanity and what God is going to do about evil is all going to come to a head. And if things have not been sounding familiar just yet, maybe some of this stuff sounds new, but it's, but it's actually not. The seven bowls might jog our memories. I saw in heaven, this is Revelation chapter 15, John says, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. And then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one can enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Especially as you read through Revelation chapter 15, the description of the plagues, and Re Revelation chapter 16, the description of the plagues, there should be something that begins to start sounding familiar. We've heard about plagues before. And we've seen a very significant move of God somewhere before. It's all the way back in the Old Testament. It's in the second book called Exodus. And in Exodus, around about chapter 7, um, there's this set of plagues that happen. You, some of you are going to be familiar with, familiar with this. If not, just go remind yourself. Read, read through Exodus. Start, uh, you can start earlier than chapter 7 to get the whole context. But read through, read through the plagues. Read through the plagues that you see in Revelation. Um, this is, this is we've, we've been here for, before, this sounds pretty familiar. In Exodus chapter 7, um, God uses a man named Moses to go to Egypt to tell the Pharaoh at that time to let his people go. Well, Pharaoh is, is not keen to do that because they've had the Israelites enslaved uh, for about 400 years or so, a, a little bit longer than that, I think. Um, and, and they kind of like having that set up. And uh, so, th so they say no. And so God says, okay, I'm, I'm going to do some things to try to get your attention, uh, try to let you know that, hey, you probably need to pay attention to what I have to say to you. And so we find 10 plagues that happen throughout that time period. There's a lot of other stuff that, that happens with, with that story. But the same thing is true, is that God is using, using these things to show, hey, I, I'm God, you're not. And, and the evil and oppression and persecution that you've perpetuated on my people, it, it will not stand forever. And at some point, as much as I want you to repent, as much as I want you to pay attention to what I'm showing you and how I'm trying to redeem you, I, I'm going to do what I have to do in, in the end. 
And this is what happens. I, you know, through, through the plagues, through, uh, through this interaction, again, there are a lot of things that happen. God delivers his people, the Israelites, away from Egypt. Um, there's so much that John is, is drawing from, so much of the Old Testament, so much of the prophets, but also he's drawing from the redemptive history of the people of God to show that God has not and will not forget his people and that one day soon he will redeem us from the bondage of sin and evil that has ensnared the world. It's gonna, there are going to be times when we feel stuck in the rut. There's going to be times where it seems like evil has won. Uh, the enemy seems like it will overpower us, and yet God will part the way for redemption and salvation. And he's already done so through Jesus. Remember, Revelation is not about a chronology of events that we look toward the future for. It's about the pattern of God's movement because victory and hope are not relegated to the distant future, but is found in participating in the rhythms of life of the kingdom of God now versus the rut of the same old, same old of this world. Uh, the last part of Revelation that I want, want to read in is, is Revelation chapter 16 because it has wild imagery, uh, but also because I think it, um, I think it kind of brings home how we're, how we're meant to, to think about uh, the, the ongoing cycle of humanity that we get trapped up in wrapped up in. Revelation chapter 16, verse 13, then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs that came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and we're going to talk about the dragon and beast next week, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of the Lord Almighty. Look, and this is almost like a parenthetical statement, um, look, I come like a thief. Blesses the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go out naked and be shamefully exposed. We, we talked about this um, back, if, if you haven't read about the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, this is going to sound a little bit more familiar. Pay attention. Be about what God is calling us to be about um, because you're going to miss it if, if you don't. And then they, the, those demonic spirits, they gather the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. I bring this up because Armageddon is kind of one of those buzzwords for Revelation. We're like, oh, that's the battle at the final, the end. Um, I, I guess there, there could be, but that's not the point of bringing this up. Um, this is a reference to a place, the mountain of Megiddo, uh, uh, the Jezreel Valley, where a ton, a ton of countless battles and wars had already been fought. So again, John's readers, familiar with their Old Testament, would think about, oh, I know what you're talking about. Like, this is the place where all kinds of wars, all kinds of kingdoms came, and they just, they just kind of destroy themselves. Like, they, they, um, they go ahead and, and, and um, like, they mete out the, the consequence, M-E-T-E, uh, the consequences of, uh, of God that he's pouring out in the world on each other. Like, like God doesn't really have to do all that much because... <laughs> Left our own devices, like we just kind of destroy one another. That, that's, that's what we do. Somebody bombs somebody, somebody else bombs another person, who bombs this person, who bombs that person, who bombs that person. Um, eye for an eye makes the whole world blind, right? And those are the things that we get caught up with, with our own empire building. That, that's the thing. It's some, somewhere, somewhere it's got to stop. You know, it's, 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 it's not unlike... You know, these kings brought to this valley where this, this war is going to take place, where the wars have always been taking place. It's not quite unlike, you know, Pharaoh saying, wait a second, the, we really liked, we really, really liked having, having slaves. So, l l like, let's go chase after them and l like, 
let's go get them. And, and where did God bring the Israelites through? The parting of the sea? And, and Pharaoh's army followed after them, and they were brought to the valley. And what happened? They were crushed and defeated. The waters came back, and, and their enemies were, were destroyed. Like part of, part of what we're supposed to understand from this text is that God is going to make everything right. Evil is going to be defeated. The enemy will not win. And so we can have hope as a result. There's a battle that's been waging and will continue to wage, as it is the cycle of humanity. Armageddon is a reference to the battles that have been waged for generations already, not just some great war we wait anxiously for in the future. I mean, (laughs) it, it still is continuing right now. Sometimes we get stuck in that. God brings us out of Egypt, and the waiting for what's next, like the Israelites, sometimes we get pulled in to check out the golden calf of the empire. Even after all this had happened in the Exodus, what God had done and how he'd saved his people, they were like, you know what? Things were actually really good in Egypt. Of course they, of course they weren't. But they just didn't know what they wanted to know. They had to wait on Moses maybe just a little bit longer than they wanted to. And they weren't sure exactly what God was going to do next. But what God says is, if you will trust in me, if you will, if you will go where I'm telling you to go, everything is going to work out for you in the end. There's, a, um, there's kind of an interesting cultural... Uh, backdrop that may exist with the text up to this point. And there are a couple, uh, couple teachers that have, um, uh, a couple scholars who have, have done some research on just the cultural context, and, and we've talked about that before in, in a few weeks about what's going on here. And some of the major things that we've talked up to this point, um, and, and there's not like a, um, this is just kind of one of those neat possibilities, right? This is not like a, a set, this is, this is how it is, and it all perfectly works together. Um, what they've looked at is they've looked at how the Olympics worked in the ancient Roman Empire. The Olympics were started long before the Roman Empire, if you don't know. They were started by the Greeks. Uh, existed for a long time. But some of the things that they do with the opening ceremony, it's, it's kind of interesting that there might be some parallels with some of the things that we've, we've looked at through the text of Revelation up, up to this point. Um, and, and that's all kind of neat, and, and we can talk about that some, some other, other time. It's not part of the sermon if, if you're kind of curious about that. Um, but what is really interesting um, about that is some of the, some of the things that might be involved or, or specific pictures and imageries about how, uh, how those opening ceremonies started and who was glorified, Caesar, you know, there'd be a scroll, there'd be announcements, there'd be trumpets blown, you know, there'd be, uh, you know, chariot races as part of that, horses, you know, brought out and representing uh, different things. But one of the things that's um, really clear about how the Olympics were competed in is that you did not compete for your country. So, you know, the Roman Empire had, had conquered a lot of different peoples, and so there are a lot of different countries that could have been represented, but uh, that probably would have been kind of weird uh, to have your oppressor, like, let you represent, uh, the, you know, patriotism or something like that. So that, that wouldn't be allowed. Um, instead, what they did is they competed um, as a representative of their god. So, so for example, um, if I was a, you know, triathlete or something like that, and in, in the Olympics, I would, I would do that. I would compete for Zeus. And my performance and the way that I handled myself, 
you know, would be representative of the power of Zeus. And if I won my competition, you would know Zeus is the strongest. Like, he, he's the man. And other people would be running on the behalf of, of other gods. Like, that's who they would be living for. And the reason I bring this up, you know, as we come to this, you know, the, the, the opening of the games, right? The trumpets have sounded, you know, the, we're caught up in this cycle of humanities. We're left with the question, okay, so what do we do in the meantime? This, this is the thing that we, we get caught up in this. So, so what's the divine perspective to move us from being stuck in the rut, being on the merry-go-round to um, participating in the divine rhythms of grace that God has called us to that uh, lead to hope and joy and good news that Jesus brings? Um, it has everything to do with um, who we're running the race for. Paul has a lot of this imagery in, in his letters. Like, on whose behalf are, are, we, are we running? Because the way that we run, not so much the result, because God is the one who guarantees the result, but it's the way that we run, it's the way that we live, it's the way that we approach life, even though we're caught up in the cycle, that points out who we believe in and who our trust and hope is in. And, and what ultimately, what victory looks like. In Hebrews chapter 12, we read, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endures such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. By the way, the rest of Hebrews chapter 12 goes perfectly with this chunk of revelation that we've covered this morning. I encourage you to read that um, sometime this week. We're called to recognize that if we hold on, even though we're caught up, if we hold on and follow the way of Jesus, we'll be representing the one true God by how we run the race, and not by the false gods who are never waiting for us at the finish line. Jesus has already won the victory, and God calls us to live a life that reflects that. That instead of being stuck in a rut with divine perspective, we, we can participate in a rhythm that is much more powerful and is sustained for eternity than any nation that might rise or fall on this earth. Wherever we find ourselves stuck, God provides a rhythm of grace and it's through repentance that reframes our perspective with hope. And so I, I just want to ask you, just challenge you this week to challenge yourself. Like what, what rut are you stuck in that you, that you need to repent from? What, what perspective, what divine perspective that does God provide through Jesus that would enable you to, to exchange that rut for a rhythm uh, that will help you to run the race? that represents not, not something broken here on this, this world, not some you know, false idol that, that doesn't last, but uh, the one true living God who ultimately has already won, won the victory. Uh, let's, let's pray this morning. God, we thank you for a, a different, uh, an opportunity for a different perspective, and we ask you to guide us through your Holy Spirit to see what that is. Um, it, it is easy to uh, just assume that just because of how the world is and how people generally live their lives, we just do the same thing. Uh, and yet you call us to something completely different. And so God, help us to pursue the kingdom of God, not 
not empires that uh, don't, don't produce what, what you've created us for. And God, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.